Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhasa Buddhandamang sanghan namasahami So here's a question for you. Can you hear me? No. <laughs> and it's duking no matter what. Let's try it with the fans off. So when it comes to suffering, sometimes you get to pick your poison. Okay. So we'll go for a hot but but uh, hearable. <laughs> So how about now? Can you hear me okay? Yes. In the back? Great. Well, it's kind of warm, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's summer. It's supposed to be warm. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, Mm -hmm. and it was often quite warm there during the summer. And eventually, uh, I started to dread summer. uh, Like, this school year would be kind of wrapping up, it'd be May, and I'm like, oh no, summer's coming. Uh, I'll have to just sort of endure summer. Uh, I remember kind of uh, getting up in the morning and trying to be, kind of do things in the morning, have some fun in the morning and then spend from about oh, 9.30 in the morning until 9.30 at night hiding <laughs> <laughs> uh, from the sun, trying not to be outdoors, trying to stay cool. And when I got up, oh, so, this, so the theme of suffering is in my mind. And it's a, a the word suffering, it always strikes me as a little theatrical, kind of kind of dramatic, you know, like uh, Christ on the cross, you know, suffering and dying for our sins. Uh, so more closer to, closer to home is the the word maybe unsatisfactoriness. When I woke up this morning, after a few minutes when my mind started operating, uh, one of the thoughts that came up, or one of the, yeah, one of the feelings that came up, was, "Oh, it's Saturday. We a uh, Saturday program. Oh yeah. Oh, it's one pro. It's, uh, we have to do Padimoka this afternoon. Oh yeah. My lumpur is gone. Hmm." That means I have to do. I'll have to do this Saturday. Oh no! (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, and then there was another. Like, oh no! This is this is great. You know, um, I have an opportunity to practice my Dhamma skills. I should I should be proud to teach the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. So there's this inner battle between, like, the virtuous monk Mm -hmm. personality and the. 
the kind of the, uh, the the part of me that doesn't want to be bothered or inconvenienced or burdened or required to do anything or uh, scheduled, uh, constrained, directed, any kind of um, obligation burdens that part of my mind. And when that part has some something that it has to bear, it complains. And that complaining voice is, uh, it's not very pleasant. It's not very pleasant, but it seems so uh, inescapable in a way. It's just right there. Like It's the feeling of, I don't like X. I don't want to. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to follow that voice. But you would think that after all these years, that the voice would just like, go away, stop bothering. But that's not the way it works. The, that experience, I think we're all familiar with that kind of an experience, where a perfectly reasonable, normal, human requirement presents itself to us in our life. And it doesn't matter how well you've got things arranged. You could be wealthy and prosperous and surrounded by people that you love and uh, have a healthy body and living in a safe and prosperous country. And the phone rings while you're reading a novel. Right? So now there's like this tension that comes up, you know? Should I let the machine pick up the thing and then so you say, I'm going to let the machine pick up the thing and I'm going to keep hanging with it. You can't help but overhear that it's, um, uh, uh, it's your neighbor asking to borrow something and, um, or something. Right? It's, like it's some kind of ordinary request or uh, interjection of uh, typical social interaction. You know, it's, it's Bob's birthday on Tuesday. Do you want to get together? You know? Whatever it is, part of you is going to go, you know, I'm just trying to read my novel. <laughs> like, why can't the world leave me alone and quit bugging me? Uh, so I'm, I, I was tuned into that, um, that feeling this morning. And so even here in the monastery, it comes up. This, it's a quality of being human. We're... No matter how good we have it, things aren't always going to be exactly what we want continuously. It's, there's going to be this constant or regular frequent occasions where our circumstances simply interject some sort of an obligation or difficulty or challenge. And they can be very small, you know, like uh, the door blew open. Now you have to get up and go close the door. Or they can be really big. You, you went in for a health check and you get a voicemail on your phone, on your, on your machine that says, uh, please call the clinic. Uh, Dr. Watson needs to speak with you. Right away. <laughs> so news like that is obviously not that frequent maybe, but it's, it's bound to happen. Right? So everything from the 
the door being ajar and needing to be closed all the way up to bad news about your future. Uh, that's just what it, that's how it works. That's how life is. And it goes on every single day. And the mind's normal reaction, as we've all seen, is to try to somehow minimize that, or escape it, or neutralize it, or get somebody else to deal with it, or avoid it, or dilute it with something. Like if, we have, if we're having something that's annoying us, that maybe if we give ourselves enough pleasure, it'll kind of make the displeasure more tolerable. So maybe we'll like binge watch Friends, <laughs> right, or something. Uh, so it was a way of maybe kind of tuning out and not having to pay attention to that. Um, and it kind of works, right? It's like it's good for a little while, but it's just not sustainable. So you wake up in the morning and there's that thing you've got to do today. You've got to go to the dentist or you have to take the car for an oil change or whatever. Right? And you'd rather do something else. So that feeling, if you, when I look very carefully at that feeling, what I see is that it has a particular familiarity to it. It feels, you could say, it feels like me. It's my, my feeling of discomfort. I'm kind of mentally owning it because it's impinging on me. And a, careful, a closer examination shows uh, and this is where the Buddhist, te the Buddhist teaching is really one of exper experience. It's an experiential teaching. Uh, so you can hear about the, the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, and the truth of the cause of suffering, and the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. But until you've seen it for yourself, until you've experienced it, you don't really know what he's talking about. The way to know is to try it out. And you have to try it out in your daily life, in real time, and under your own circumstances with whatever's happening to you. It's not a theoretical thing. It's, a, it's an experiential thing. So if you're bored, or you're restless, or you're inconvenienced, or you're bothered, or you're, you've stubbed your toe, or one of your teeth fell out, or um, someone you love got diagnosed with cancer, whatever it is in the span of trouble. Feel that. Feel the, the, the cringe, the, the internal uh, re reaction to the obligation, to the burden, to the difficulty, to the pain, as a kind of uh, 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 shrinking away or a cowering or cringing, kind of an inner feeling of like not wanting it. And if you feel that feeling without trying to fix it, just sort of feel the sensation of it, then at that moment you're in touch with uh, unsatisfactoriness in kind of a pure form. It's unsatisfactoriness without any uh, additions, without any dilutions, without any uh, amendments. It's just a straight up, this is how it feels to not like something. And um, it's, it, it, if you study this, 
you'll see that there's, it's possible to feel this feeling of, of unsatisfactoriness um, kind of come and go like throughout the day over all kinds of little things. It can be as subtle as uh, uh, you're walking and there's a rock along the path that you're walking on and you have to you have to kind of go around it a little bit. You have to walk, like guide your feet so you don't step on it. It can be very, very subtle. It's like you want it, you, part of you wants the path to be smooth and un, undisturbed and part of you uh, is on the lookout for any obstacles that you might trip over and when something comes up then now you've got to deal with it and it's just that little disturbance and really that's what unsatisfactoriness is it's being disturbed it's non-peace it's uh, unruffledness it's um, being somehow knocked off center or off balance and what that illustrates is that what what we're valuing, you could say, is a feeling of contentment, a feeling of peace, a feeling of not unsatisfactoriness. So it's not so much that what we're after is to feel some sort of constant gush of happiness and joy and pleasure. That's nice when it happens. But what we actually really uh, can abide with, kind of really get along well with, is a feeling of undisturbedness, a feeling of peace and contentment. And that's what the Buddha is offering. It's, it, there might be bliss, there might be joy along this path, but the real payoff is when there's peace, when there's a sense of like, it's totally okay, I'm not disturbed by this. So further investigation is, is warranted because this is where the, uh, the Buddhist teaching uh, reveals its strategy. The strategy is this. If you really study suffering, sooner or later you'll see that there's a mental mm, stance in regards to circumstances which is connected with that feeling of being disturbed. And to put it into words is a little awkward, but it, it kind of amounts to this. Um, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't want it. And the key point there is, is I. There's, like there's, there's someone who's got something at stake here. And the stance is always one of subject and object. So it's me inside, of, inside here in this body being afflicted by these obligations coming at me from the outside world. And the feeling of being disturbed is connected to that feeling of being someone who is being burdened. And if you can, if you can catch a glen, a glen, little glimpses of that, then you're really on the right track. As long as you think that the disturbance is coming from the outside world and that you're, you're looking for the solution in the outside world in order to solve the problem, then it's, it's always going to be whack-a-mole, right? You solve this problem, another one pops up over there, right? You can't possibly solve them all for any enduring period of time. So what you're really kind of do is trying to, what you're really trying to do uh, is uh, sort of take apart the mechanism of suffering see how it works and uh, 
and then maybe uh, modify how it works. So this is, uh, this is the Buddhist strategy. So the duty that comes when you're a practitioner in regards to suffering is not to, is not to make yourself suffer, <laughs> not to go looking for suffering, but also not to try to avoid suffering, but to study suffering, to examine suffering, to pick it apart, to see how it works. And, and a lot of that has to do with a, a kind of a, a, courage, a bravery, courage, to actually turn and face the sensation of unsatisfactoriness directly without trying to do anything about it, without trying to rationalize it, without trying to mentally make it okay, without defending against it, without uh, trying to come up with a way to work around it. Just go right there and like, oh, this is it. This is what the Buddha is talking about, Un unsatisfactoriness. The word dukkha uh, that we translate as suffering um, in Pali has this has an etymology which suggests something like that which is difficult to bear. So that covers a lot, right? Everything, anything that you don't like or you don't want is difficult for you to bear. And it could be just a little tiny bit of difficulty or it could be a great big gigantic difficulty, a sort of a mortal difficulty. But it all falls under this heading of dukkha. So if you start studying dukkha, when you're in pretty good shape, your body's healthy, cir circumstances aren't so bad, mm -hmm. then you can become sort of an expert at what it feels like, what unsatisfactoriness feels like, and, and how the mind reacts. It's normal, reflexive, um, sort of knee-jerk reaction to dukkha. What does the mind normally do? You kind of probably sort of already know that the mind looks for a way to get out of it. But there, it has a whole bunch of strategies to try to get out of it that you might not be fully familiar with, and that's worth looking at. Sometimes, like I said, the, the strategy is to just kind of try to ignore it, try to numb it out, try to avoid it. Uh, a lot of times it's to uh, find something to distract yourself from, with, uh, from it. And so then you can see that a lot of what you're doing in your life is a strategy to get away from or to manage your suffering. And when you start to see that, then your life starts to have a different shape to it. Like the, the, the way that you spend your time, um, you could say that you, you start to reappraise the sense of what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. Uh, we tend, to, we, we tend to come up with a, with a plausible sounding story for why we do things. Something which maybe uh, uh, sounds fairly noble and, and, and uh, uh, uplifting maybe. You know, the, the reason I'm eating this chocolate cake is to prevent other people from being tempted. <laughs> uh, or I'm, I'm, I'm watching this movie I've seen five times already um, because I'm really a film buff and I really want to know all the nuances of the director's technique. Or maybe I really deserve this because I've put up with so much today. Yeah. Right? And none of those are like, like wrong or evil or anything, but they, they're, they're sort of self-deceptive 
right? If you could admit that you're eating chocolate cake because you're trying to dilute your dukkha, then you're much closer to the truth. You know? Or if I'm, you know, I'm watching reruns of I Love Lucy because you just don't want to face your, the discomfort of whatever it is that's making you uncomfortable. Um, or whatever, right? So a lot of what you're doing in your life uh, could be motivated by, by obligation, by requirement, by necessity, by duty, by routine, by custom, and those are all valid motivations. But a fair bit of it's just motivated by dukkha, by unsatisfactoriness. And by fair bit, I mean um, maybe more than you think. Uh, in fact, it's, it wouldn't be uh, necessarily incorrect to say that pretty much the whole world, everything that's going on in the world is some kind of response to unsatisfactoriness. Things aren't good enough the way they are right now. So we have to do something to change them. And so, that, so you could say like the whole world's being driven by dukkha. Uh, and this can give you a sense of um, really being connected with other people, like what they're doing when they're zooming by you on the freeway, like maniacs, is because of their dukkha. Or what they're doing when they're dawdling in the, in the checkout line, you know, examining the, the magazines when their cashier's waiting for them and you're in a hurry. They're doing it because of their dukkha. Uh, all the little things that go on in, uh, with other people, their political stances, the way they respond on Twitter, uh, mm -hmm. uh, their, uh, their opinions and beliefs, um, the group that they align themselves with, that's uh, almost all somehow connected with a sense of uh, this unsatisfactoriness. The decision to defend a belief is often driven by a sense of being threatened and not being able to comfortably tolerate that sense of being threatened because it's unsatisfactory. So most of what's going on in the political realm around defending beliefs and opinions and views, um, you know, the, this side of the political spectrum and that side of the political spectrum, when one takes up a side uh, on any side of a controversy, um, objectively you can see that the people on the other side they believe what they believe too. They've got their own reasons for believing it. And you probably believe what you believe for what you think are perfectly good and valid reasons. And if you assume that your good and valid reasons are absolutely right, correct, true, and valid, then necessarily because they don't see the things the way that you do, their views must be wrong. They must be wrong. They must be deluded, misguided, and perhaps even evil. Right? So, so this stance of having a view, having a, a perspective on a given issue, potentially puts you in a, in a place of devaluing other human beings over what essentially is a mental phenomenon. Right? Most of what we think is true about the world when it comes to, say, politics, uh, is only in our heads. Like, like, like uh, how many people here have actually met um, a politician about whom they feel particularly passionate, uh, one way or the other, um, and really, really knows actually in direct experience how that what that person is really like. 
or a view that you might have about uh, religion or poli uh, politics, or those are the popular ones. But you know, it could be history, it could be your family, it could be your childhood. Any sort of a view that you have that's strongly held, in a way it's being held for a reason. And the reason is rooted in, again, a sense of, uh, it, it creates a, a bulwark or a barrier, uh, a protection against that feeling that we don't want to feel, that feeling of unsatisfactoriness. Like things, so it feels maybe good to, it feels good to feel like you're correct, that you're right, you're on the right side of an issue. And that good feeling gets threatened when somebody else says, no, you're wrong about that, and they start kind of lecturing you about why you're wrong, right? So that can bring up like everything from annoyance all, all the way up to rage, and, and you might be motivated to attack back. But if you, if you stand back a little bit and look at political controversies throughout the history of humanity, uh, you can see that this, this is just par for the course. This has been going on for as long as humans, humans have been recording uh, their interactions with each other. Uh, politics was a big deal in, in, in Rome and in Greece in ancient times, thousands of years ago. There's political controversies which don't sound that unusual to us, uh, sprinkled throughout the suttas 2,500 years ago. So we're just dealing with the same exact human conditions now as were occurring then. So if we think that our situation is somehow incredibly unique and vital and important, uh, it, it's, well, it's good to kind of get some perspective on this. And studying your dukkha, studying your own sense of unsatisfactoriness can help you uh, develop a certain sense of, not indifference, but um, maybe mature uh, aloofness to the motivations that spring from that, from that unsatisfactoriness. So the unsatisfactoriness just comes up because of causes and conditions of our day-to-day of our -day lives. Obligations and requirements and other people's opinions and pressures come to us and the mind responds with this feeling of like, ah, yuck, I don't want that. And then there's a, there's a, there's a follow-on response, which is, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this, right? And that's the thing that motivates us to do all the things that we do. So if you study, your, if you study the feeling of dukkha, the sense of unsatisfactoriness, and you start to see how uh, the, the various strategies and stances and opinions that you... Uh, develop and promote in your daily in your in your mind are re reactions to that unsatisfactoriness. You start to get more. Uh, you eventually become quite tuned in to when unsatisfactoriness is being brought up and what the mind is doing in response to it, and you start to become more. Uh, uh, able to cut things off before they go too far. There's a lot of instruction in the suttas and in the vinaya for the for the monks and nuns about restraint, and this is a key place. This is kind of where restraint comes in. If you see what you're about to do and you can stop yourself from doing it because you know it's just going to lead to further unsatisfactoriness, you're really doing yourself a favor, right? 
because no one likes to feel that feeling of unsatisfactoriness. Certainly you don't like to feel that feeling of unsatisfactoriness. So if someone's trying to start a bitter, rancorous debate with you about some political topic on Twitter, right? Like you don't have to respond or you don't have to say anything nasty. Uh, and if you restrain yourself from saying something which is unhelpful, or, then, and, you're, and again, you're kind of watching your mind, you're seeing how it responds, then you'll see when you, when you do something like that, when you're able to let go of the, the defense mechanism, the strategy for getting out of the dukkha. It, basically, you kind of accept this, things the way they are. Like, okay, yeah, that guy has this opinion. That's okay. I just, that's, that's as far as it needs to go. Well, there's, what do you feel after that? It feels kind of quiet. Right? It's not, not necessarily quite so stirred up. And that's moving to back towards non-disturbance. Right? But you see, you have to make a sacrifice to get that non-disturbance. What you have to sacrifice is your own views and opinions and sort of your own self-cherishing. So in order to be happy and peaceful, all you have to do is completely abandon yourself. Well, okay. <laughs> That's maybe not so easy. And, and it's not something you can do all at once. But again, this is the mechanism. We study dukkha. We see how it's connected with the the wants, the cravings, the desires, the stances, the beliefs, the views, the opinions, and all those things are connected to me. My views, my opinions, my time, my convenience, my comfort, my this, my that, right? The me is the center, actually, of all the trouble, all the unsatisfactoriness. So when you start to see that connection, then eventually you kind of see that it's possible to sort of disrupt it a little bit. And this is where you're starting to explore, you begin to see the third noble truth, the cessation of dukkha. So seeing dukkha is the first noble truth, studying that feeling of unsatisfactoriness, what brings it up and how the mind reacts. The second, so that's the duty there is to, is to know, to understand dukkha. The second noble truth is the cause of dukkha. We always start off thinking the cause of dukkha is that idiot on Twitter who keeps, you know, whatever, or the, the fact that I've got to go to be at work, the traffic, whatever it is that's bothering you. You think that's the cause of dukkha. But of course, by now you've intuited that's not really it, right? Those are just external circumstances. The cause of dukkha is happening inside, and the way it's happening inside is the external circumstances contact us and because of a certain stance, a certain way of wanting things to be, a certain attitude about, uh, you know, like when I wake up in the morning, I like to feel like the entire day is open and there's no obligations and I can do whatever I want. And so when the phone rings and now I have to go do something, there's the dukkha, right? Because there's this obligation. But the obligation isn't creating the dukkha. It's the, it's the pre-existing feeling of wanting to have this sort of freedom and completely unburdened life, uh, which is a stance. And it's a completely irrational, uh, baseless stance. Human life isn't like that at all. You've never experienced 
that for very long. Right? Maybe you had a couple minutes of that when you're a child, but for the most part, there's always some obligation coming along. That's just the nature of our existence. So the stance itself is not grounded in reality. It's grounded in just sort of wishful thinking, wanting. So there we see the second noble truth, desire, craving, right? It's not, it's not necessarily like craving to eat something or craving to be with someone or craving to have something. It's just like, like wanting things your own, wanting things the way you like them, right? Wanting your own convenience, wanting things your way, wanting people to agree with you. That's, that all falls under this title of craving. And again, it's always the me that's craving, that's wanting things, that's desiring things. So you can see then, okay, there's the dukkha, there's the craving that's behind the dukkha. Right? That, that, that mental stance is, sets the stage so the dukkha is going to happen when circumstances contact me. And now this is like, like taking apart a clock. You see, oh look, there's the mainspring, and that's the gear, and this is how the little gear gets turned by the big gear and makes the hand go around. And you start to understand how this thing works by studying it. And you have to kind of look over and over and over again. But sooner or later you'll find out that, oh yeah, if that person does this, and I feel this dukkha, it's because of my view about him and how he should be, or what he shouldn't say, or my views about how people should agree with me or whatever. And if I can just like keep my mouth shut and not respond, okay, that's not so not necessarily really easy, but if I do it, it kind of it kind of quiets everything. It's, it's, it, there's like a certain release when you let go of the of that desire. Say, okay, I, I kind of want that, but I'm just going to let it go. When you can let go, there you go. Third noble truth: the cessation of dukkha. The, the feeling of like things aren't acceptable goes away at that moment on that particular issue. So you have an experience, a little taste of the cessation of dukkha. And what's left is a feeling of like, everything's okay, like things are okay, it's good enough, satisfactory, which is the inverse of unsatisfactory. And the only way that you can actually do that consistently, moment after moment, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, that you can have a life filled with many, many moments of peace, contentment, happiness, and uh, freedom from dukkha is by being super vigilant, by having a mind that's always on track, always on top of what's about to happen, always watching for how circumstances are affecting uh, emotions and habits and points of view and um, pre-existing uh, um, responses that are built into your psyche from all this conditioning that you've had all these years. So. That's, called, that's, mind, that's what mindfulness is really for. Right? When you're mindful, you're watching your own mind. And when you see the circumstances of dukkha and grasping and clinging desire and response and causing trouble with your words or your actions, you see that whole kind of dynamic starting to emerge. Or maybe even just like the tendency to get annoyed and irritated and pissed off. Uh, or depressed or angry or anxious or all the other negative emotions. They're all coming from that same clockwork of dukkha and the cause of dukkha. 
So you get really familiar with that clockwork and you see the possibility of letting go. And then you become a letting go expert. You let go of this and you let go of that and you let go of the other thing. And when you start to experience it, it's like, ouch, 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 oh, let go, ouch, 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 let go, ouch, 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 let go. And then pretty soon it's like, I'm gonna let go before it even starts to hurt, right? And then you start to kind of get into this place where you're not really suffering. Hardly, hardly at all, and whatever happens, it's like you're able to deal with it without really a whole lot of commentary. You don't even feel proud of yourself because you just see that feeling proud of yourself just creates more dukkha, right? Because if someone comes along and takes you down a notch, then you're going to feel bad. So, like, you, you, your mind is able to deal with circumstances and not elaborate beyond that. So, so uh, as they say, and in in, you'll often hear in Dhamma talks from our Thai teachers, like it's it's just that much, and that's all. Right? So whatever happens, that's all there is to it. So if someone says something mean to you, that's it. It stops right there. Right? It doesn't have to go any further than that. You don't have to feel bad about it. You don't have to take it in. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to say anything mean back. It just it can end right there because your mind doesn't grasp it. If someone insults you and the mind doesn't accept it, it just kind of bounces off. Because you've trained your mind. Then, then now your mind is like protected by the Dhamma. And this, this mind that's protected by the Dhamma uh, requires a certain diligence, a kind of commitment to, to continuous practice. It's not like you sort of arrive at this magical place where now you're free from suffering and you can just kind of, you know, watch movies for the rest of your life. It's, it's, just, it's still going to be this whole full-on human life that you're living, but the things that are coming at you are not sticking to you anymore because you're not grasping them anymore. So when good things happen to you, you don't grasp them. And when bad things happen to you, you don't grasp them. And so when the good things that you have get taken from you, you let them go. And so because of that non-stickiness of the mind, uh, then this whole mechanism of having a point of view or having a stance, something coming along and pushing you out of your comfort zone, dukkha comes up, there's a reaction, that whole complicated mess starts really quieting down. And what, what the mind experiences then is increasingly longer periods of time, but nothing's really happening. Right? And then if something does happen, there's a lot more maneuvering room, you could say. Like, the mind doesn't have to go through a pre-programmed set of responses to, to something happening. So, you know, dinner's late and the mind doesn't care. Dinner's early, the mind doesn't care. It's steak, and the mind doesn't care. It doesn't care not in the sense that it's indifferent to. It might appreciate it, it might like, it might enjoy it. But it doesn't, it doesn't cling to it. And that's a much, much different feeling. So this different, this kind of different feeling uh, from the outside doesn't look different. You know, you're still kind of answering the phone and you know paying your bills and all these kinds of things. Um, but the mind has more and more freedom internally. And then when, when some circumstance w could potentially warrant it, uh, there can be gratitude. There can be uh, uh, kindness. There can be um, compassion to what's happening for other people because the mind has so much more room in it for those things to be 
because it's not it's no longer trying to defend itself it's the, the amount of mental energy that's left uh, for basically wholesome enjoyable mental states is uh, much bigger so this is the this is the the promise and the challenge of the Buddhist teaching the promise is if you study dukkha and you really get to understand it and you see how it works then you'll also see how how you can turn it off that's the promise the challenge is, is you have to study dukkha and you have to really see how it works and then you have to be willing out of eh, confidence I guess you could say to give it a go to, to say okay the Buddha says these things can be let go of and so when something's not going your way rather than trying to get your way if you're if you're kind of Johnny on the spot you're where okay I'm suffering it's because I want my way and I'm not getting my way what would happen if I let it go I let go of trying to get my way I'm just gonna go along with what you want you know you want to do it this way I want to do it the other way I'm letting go of my way how are we gonna do it now right without making it a problem for somebody else but just sort of mentally internally telling yourself I'm letting go of this what does that feel like? It's interesting how it feels. But what comes with the aftermath of it is is in, uh, almost inevitably always a sense of like quieter, calmer, more peaceful, uh, less problematic. And that that can grow and blossom and fill more and more of your mental space. Uh, and then you'll really know that you'll know the Dhamma uh, moment after moment and hour after hour. And that's the, that's really the meaning of this teaching is to live this human life, this very life that we've been given from a place of constantly knowing what's happening and guarding against the, the eruption of unskillful, unwholesome responses to the world. The world can't help being the way that it is. Right? It just is the way it is. But what we can do, we can train the mind to not respond in an unhelpful way to the world being the way it is. A well-trained mind is what, the, is what this practice leads to. Once you get the hang of it, then that's all you're ever doing. You're just always kind of training your mind. You're noticing unsatisfactoriness tending to come up and you're letting go of whatever it is that's preventing that from happening. That's encouraging that to happen. And setting the stage for the next letting go and the next letting go and the next letting go. Then you're having a happy life. So, I'll leave it there. May you all have a very happy life. <laughs> Oh,